0: Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, For those of you that don't know me or first-time visitors or just don't know me, my name is Russ. I am one of the elders here at Ephesus, and I'm going to be our lead-off preacher for our renewal conference this year. Um, The theme of our conference is the way of the blessed, and we're going to be mainly focusing on the Beatitudes uh, today in the next three or four days, but... I'm also going to spend a lot of time, uh, just in preparation and introduction of the Sermon on the Mount. These uh, chapters in Matthew, starting in chapter five through chapter seven, and we just heard chapter five read. I'm going to try to give a introduction to this sermon and talk about that some. Um, <clears throat> and you, you may be asking why the beatitudes. Well, you know, we we batted around a lot of ideas on what what we want to we wanted to preach on in the conference. And uh, one of them was the Beatitudes. And I just remembered growing up, my my parents had this thick family Bible. You know, it was like so heavy I couldn't even pick up until I was like five or six or something. But the the Bible was, you know, it had this beautiful calligraphy. And it had these really pretty pictures in it that that people had, these like Renaissance-type pictures of different scenes from the Bible. You know, it had Jonah being swallowed by the whale. It had... um, Jesus' ascension. And it just had these beautiful pictures. And I would love to go back and look at those. From the earliest time I can remember, I would just, it just fascinated me. There was one section of scripture that almost gave me that same fascination. And that was the Beatitudes. And I can just remember reading the Beatitudes. And even as a young child, going back, every time I would pick up that Bible, I would read the Beatitudes. And I don't think that is a unusual attitude. Um, the Beatitudes are one of the most studied, one of the most written about sections of Scripture in the entire Bible. And it's, it's our hope that you'll get encouragement from the Beatitudes because it is a very encouraging section of Scripture. And the Beatitudes are an introduction for what's widely called the Sermon on the Mount. First uh, 11 verses of chapter 5 are the Beatitudes and um Jesus starts out right at the beginning, getting our attention. You know, Jesus, this is uh, a sermon by Jesus. He's obviously the master at giving sermons. So he starts out grabbing our attention in the Beatitudes. I hope it'll grab your attention also. St. Augustine, that great theologian and author, said that the Sermon on the Mount is a perfect standard of the Christian life. And it's one of the most well-known, if not the most famous portions of Scripture. It's it's had a great effect outside of Christianity. It's influenced even non Christians. Gandhi, Mahatma Gandhi, said that the Beatitudes had great influence on his political approach. There's been vast amounts of literature written uh, on these three chapters alone. could probably fill up this room and many more. One recent, now, when you have this much written, about a section of scripture, you're obviously going to have probably different ideas written about it, and there's many different ways to interpret the Sermon on the Mount, or try to figure out what exactly is Jesus trying to get here uh, in these three chapters. And a, a recent study said that there's 36 different interpretations of the Sermon on the Mount. That's just that's just one study. There there may be more. And I want to I want to briefly mention. You now we're going to be going through a lot of a lot of information this morning, but I want to briefly mention some of the most popular ways that people have tried to interpret some of the Mount. The first one is a common Lutheran interpretation of the sermon, is that it's an exposition of God's law to drive people to the grace of the gospel. And I believe certainly this is true. It's kind of similar to Paul's use of the law. Paul uses the law to drive people to the gospel, to show them their sinfulness and their need for a Savior. And uh, the common Lutheran interpretation is that you know, that's what the Sermon of the Mount is all about. Now, some take the Sermon on the Mount to be a kind of a moral roadmap to social progress. This is what your more liberal um, part of Christianity would say. It's kind of uh, like the social gospel where you help out your neighbor, you love your neighbor, you, you live out what's in the Sermon on the Mount. Um, but, you know, again, that kind of denies the supernaturalness of the Sermon on the Mount. And it, it minimalizes Jesus as the Savior. Some people say it's a set of moral standards used by the people who Matthew was writing to. They call this the Matthean or Matthean community. Um, And obviously we would think it's much more than that. Um, Some say it's a sermon whose point is to intensify God's Old Testament moral law. Like we just heard, not only are you uh, not to murder, but you're not even to be angry with your neighbor. And that is true. That is true. And some even have said it's a law for the millennial kingdom only. And not really applicable to our time. This is this or some variant of this, this is a classic dispensational view, um, <clears throat> and some are moving away from that view. I would disagree with that view and say that we need to understand the Sermon of the Mount and the entire Bible in a, in the sense of a, a interpretation called an inaugurated eschatology, which says that the kingdom has been inaugurated, just like a a, a politician would have an inaugural address to. Open up their their um, political uh, rule. Jesus has inaugurated the kingdom of God, and we'll be talking about the kingdom of God a lot. But the kingdom of God is it's already here, but it's not yet fully here. It won't be consummated until Jesus returns the second time. So that's kind of uh, what I'm going to focus on, and that's the kind of interpretive grid I'm going to use this morning. That the already not yet tension of the kingdom. Uh, this, this sermon's ethic is the goal for all Christians now, but will not be fully realized until the consummation of the kingdom at Christ's return. But for the Christian, most believe and a lot believe that this is one of the greatest sermons ever preached. It was preached by Jesus himself. Um, if at one setting, probably several hours long, there's some debate whether it was a few uh, sermons, but whether it's one sermon or, or a couple, um, what we have are the distilled and compacted that we have the Power Pat highlights of Jesus' sermon here on possibly one of the greatest sermons ever given. And imagine a new monarch that has just taken the throne, a new king that has just taken the throne, or a new president. You know, a president would be more in line with our thinking. This is a new monarch or a new king is ushering in a brand new age. And he wants you to know what this kingdom is going to look like. He wants you to know what people in his kingdom looks like and what his, what his citizens will look like. This, this is what I kind of will call Jesus' state of the kingdom message. He's given us the state of the kingdom. He's going to tell us what this kingdom is about, what it looks like, what it feels like. And this is not a new message. It's a reaffirmation of the message of the Old Testament. Um, Malachi 4 you don't have to turn there, but Malachi 4, the first couple of verses says, "...For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that, so that it will leave them neither root or branch. But for you who fear my name, the Son of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings." You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall. So even here back in Malachi, he speaks about the arrogant and the evildoers. that will be stubble. They'll be judged. And you need to remember that word arrogant because that's very applicable to our uh, verse today that we'll be look, looking at. Now, John MacArthur says about the Sermon on the Mount, he says, The ideals and principles of the Sermon on the Mount are utterly contrary to those of human societies and government. And we'll see this as a theme throughout the Beatitudes, throughout the next few days, that these principles are very contrary to what we see in the world around us. In Christ's kingdom, the most exalted person is the lowliest person in the world's eyes. Let's look at somebody, for example, John the Baptist. In Matthew eleven eleven, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist, Yet, the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. I think for a second what it means to be great. Okay, let's, let's just think about this. John, the Baptist, no possessions. He didn't, didn't own anything. Uh, he had no home. He lived out in the woods, somewhere in the desert. To us, it would be woods. He, he barely had any clothes. He wore animal skins. Uh, and he ate bugs and honey. So just think what you, if you saw somebody like that today, what would be your thought towards somebody like that? That's probably somebody you steer clear from, you grab your kids, say no, no, you know, just don't go over there, something like that. But he was, there was no one greater than John, Jesus said. But what, what's great about that? What is great about that? He had no theological degree. He had no church staff position. He wasn't on staff at the synagogue. He, he had no financial, military, or political position, let alone power. We see people in great financial positions, in military positions, in political positions. Those are usually all about power. He had none of that. So what's great about that? And even more, he preached a message that people thought was pretty crazy. Um, Pastor Nick talked last, last week about riding the bus in the Dominican Republic of Haiti and He was talking to a journalist, and, you know, the journalist asked him why he was there. And Peschnick explained to him, you know, he talked to him about about Jesus, what God's done for him. And he said that stopped their conversation pretty quick. How many conversation stoppers do you think John the Baptist had? You know, I could see the the Pharisee coming up to him and say, hey, John, how's it going? You snake, you're going to burn like worthless husks of grain, you know? I mean, it's like, okay, John, see you later, man. (laughs) I mean, he was not a conversationalist. He stopped conversations in their tracks. But what does Jesus mean by the least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than John? He means that the least are those who are humble and those who are compassionate, those who are meek, those who are seeking to live righteously, those who are merciful, pure in heart, peacemakers, and those who are persecuted because they are trying to live a life that gives glory and praise and honor to jesus these are the least but this is what we as members of jesus kingdom should be striving for and desiring to look like now in the world's eyes most of these traits may be okay some of the time you know it's okay to be gentle occasionally and but they're not going to lead you to greatness in the world's eyes no they'll probably consider you a loser be meek why i need to assert myself I need to defend myself. I need to stand up for myself. I need to be proud of myself. I need to elevate myself. I need to avenge myself. How dare they? I need to serve myself. What's the common theme we see through all these things? Myself. Friends, these are beatitudes for the world's kingdom, not our kingdom, not our king's kingdom. The world's kingdom is passing away. It cannot bring you lasting joy nor can it save you from your sins. It offers nothing of consequence. Serving yourself will gain you nothing. Now, another important idea being taught in a sermon is that true spirituality is internal, but leads to external actions and attitudes. Entrance into this kingdom is a matter of our hearts, a matter of our soul. Now, being a member of God's kingdom, we probably have, our, you know, our culture, our society has a lot of mixed-up views about how you get in God's kingdom. It's not about church tradition. It's not about ritual or attendance every Sunday or every other Sunday or Christmas and Easter. It's not about showing up at church and giving a few dollars or giving a lot of dollars or in the offering plate. It's not about singing some songs. And going home, you know, get back to what you really enjoy and what you really like to do. Um, it's not about having the right doctrine, though we must have right doctrine. We must have biblical doctrine. But it's not about that. It's not about just believing the right things because the Bible tells us that the devil believes the right things. But he doesn't have the right attitude. It's not about voting for the right candidate or being a member of the right political party or holding the right political views. It is about a right attitude toward God and other people. This is the sum of the law. Jesus tells us later in the same uh, book, he says, "The love your Lord, love the Lord with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself." So our external attitudes and actions have to flow from a heart that loves God, a heart that has passion for God. And this has always been God's way. First Samuel 16:7 says, "When Samuel was trying to pick a, a successor to King Saul, uh, he was looking at the externals of, of these men. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance, or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him, for the Lord sees not as man sees, man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. And also Proverbs 4:23 says, "Keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow." the springs of life. So this is why John was great, because God looked at his heart and he saw a heart that loved God and a heart that was passionate for God and a heart that desired to serve God above all else. And so the goal of the Sermon on the Mount and the unifying theme is the coming of the kingdom of God and what that looks like for you and me. And this is very important. I want, to, I want to give you a few reasons why I believe that this is the this is the theme of the Sermon on the Mount. Not really those other uh, inter, uh, interpretations I, I read earlier but but it, the theme is the coming of the kingdom of God and first of all this kingdom theme is seen throughout the Sermon on the Mount and is emphasized where Matthew places it in his book where he places the Beatitudes in the Sermon on the Mount the kingdom focus starts really in chapter 4 back in chapter 4 verses 17 and 23 and verse 17 of chapter 4 says from that time Jesus began to preach saying repent for the kingdom of heaven is is at hand. The kingdom was at hand. It was within their reach. It was within their grasp. It was close as their hands were in front of them. Verse 23 says, And he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. This gospel is intricately uh, wrapped around the kingdom. It's part of the kingdom. It is the gospel of the kingdom. Now, the, the, the reward of the kingdom bookends the Beatitudes. If we look at verse 3 in chapter 5, uh, it says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And then near the end in verse 10, it says, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This is a, way, a Hebrew way of emphasizing something by putting it at the beginning, in the end, this, the, the Beatitudes summarize the essence of the Sermon on the Mount. And, and here we see that the reward is the kingdom of heaven. Um, third reason, I'm giving six, the kingdom is vital in chapter 5, verses 17 through 20, which we just heard, which is a very important section on the relationship between the Old Testament and the kingdom. And here it says Jesus will fulfill and accomplish the law in his kingdom. The, number four, the kingdom is at the heart of the Lord's prayer. In chapter 6, verse 10, Jesus says, Thy will be, or, um, or maybe I should read it. Blessed are those who um sorry, chapter 6, verse 10. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This is the heart of the Lord's prayer. For the, for We are to pray and work for the advancement of God's kingdom here on earth right now. Number five is how we enter the kingdom and what it looks like to be in the kingdom is taught here. These verses show us that kingdom life toward God and each other, uh, our horizontal and vertical, our vertical relationship with God, our horizontal relationships toward others is explained here in the Sermon on the Mount. And it anticipates the love commandments in Matthew 22. It anticipates the fact that the whole law is summed up and that we should love the Lord our God all our heart, soul, mind, and strength and love our neighbor as ourselves. And the last reason is that this powerful sermon shows us where we stand in Jesus' kingdom. Are we in or are we out? Now, my belief is that the Sermon on the Mount is not primarily Jesus telling Christians how we should act. This is very important. But him telling Christians how we will act. It's not telling us as much how we should, I don't think, but telling us how we will act. What the kingdom looks like. Now, Jesus said he's the way. The, what is the way you know if you if you go down a way you're, you're going a certain direction this means we should follow him down a certain path. Jesus said, I am the way this is the way you go. this is the way to the kingdom. you follow me, you live like me. Um, this is a, this is like a sign that says this way to the kingdom. That's what the Sermon on Mount is. R. Kent Hughes who wrote a book uh, whole book about the Sermon on the Mount said that no other section of Scripture makes us faith ourselves like the Sermon on the Mount. So the Sermon on the Mount is the antidote to the lie that is cultural Christianity. It is the antidote to a so-called Christianity that is marked by pride, selfishness, harshness, anger, that exhibits a complete disregard for sacrifice and love of God and neighbor, not to mention the Word of God itself. This sermon by Jesus does violence to the false Christian, but it gives hope and a place of rest to the true child of God. Now, our focus and starting points for each speaker in in the conference is going to be uh, the Beatitudes. They're each going to be starting with a Beatitude. The first four, they kind of mirror, kind of like the Ten Commandments. The first four are about our relationship to God, our vertical relationship. The next four deal with our relationships with each other, our horizontal relationships here on earth. But each beatitude builds on the other while they're, again, bookended with the same reward, the kingdom of heaven. And again, this is a Hebrew way of saying that the beatitudes deal with the kingdom of heaven. So let's start looking a little bit at what, what we're reading here. First thing I want to talk about is the word blessed or blessed that we see at the beginning of each of the beatitudes. It's very important for us to understand what this word blessed or blessed means. This great sermon by Jesus begins with the theme of blessedness. Now, far from being the cosmic killjoy that a lot of people like to represent the God of the Bible to be, Jesus, his sacrificial death or his life, sacrificial life and death, saves us from a state of bondage to sin. It gives us power to live how we were created to live. And to make us blessed is the most kind and generous demonstration of love and joy that can ever be imagined. There's nothing negative about how God views us and treats us, his children. It is, too, for our joy. It's for our good and for his glory. Now, the Greek word here, makarios, which is the word uh, that's translated blessed, has gone through several different meanings throughout time. I want to give you some historical context. Um, In the ancient Greek times, Makarios referred to the gods. The blessed ones were gods. They had achieved a state of happiness and contentment in life that was beyond all cares, was beyond all labor, it was even beyond death. The blessed ones were beings who lived in some other world away from the cares and problems and worries of ordinary people. So to be blessed in this understanding, you had to be a god. Makarios took on a second meaning. It referred to the dead. The blessed ones were humans who, through death, had reached the other world of the gods. They were now beyond. They were now beyond the cares and problems and worries of earthly life. So to be blessed in this meaning, you had to be dead. So you had to be a god. You had to be dead. Not looking too good for us so far. Um, finally, in Greek usage, Makarios came to refer to the elite, the upper crust of society, the wealthy people. It referred to people whose riches and power. Again, put them above the normal cares and problems and worries of the lesser folk, lesser people. The person, the peons, who constantly struggle and worry about labor and life. To be blessed, you had to be very rich and powerful. Uh, You know, getting a little close to being attainable, but still out of reach for most most of us. So when this word, makarios, was used in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, though, it took on another meaning. It referred to the results of right living or of righteousness. If he lived right, you were blessed. Being blessed meant you received earthly, material things. A good wife, many children, abundant crops, riches, honor, wisdom, beauty, good health, etc. A blessed person had more things and better things than an ordinary person. To be blessed, you had to have big and beautiful things. So in all of these meanings, the blessed ones or the blessed ones lived in a higher plane than the rest of us. They were God's. They were humans who had gone to the world of the gods. They were wealthy, the upper crust of society. They were those with many possessions. The blessed were those people and beings who lived above the normal cares, problems, and worries of normal people. Now, Matthew, writing here, reflecting Jesus' thoughts, uses this word in a totally different way. In God's kingdom, it's not the elite who are blessed. It is not the rich and powerful who are blessed. It is not the high and mighty who are blessed. Rather, Jesus pronounces God's blessings on the lowly, the poor, the hungry, the thirsty, the meek, the mourning. Throughout the history of this world, it had always been other, the other people who were considered blessed. The rich, the filled up, the full, the powerful. But Jesus turns this completely upside down here. He says that the elite... In God's kingdom, the blessed ones in this new kingdom that he's going to be ruling over are those who are at the bottom of the heap of humanity. This is totally contrary to what anybody had ever thought a blessed person was. Now, some some Bible translations translate the Greek word happy. Um, In our day, this is understood primarily as a feeling. You know, you're happy. This modern understanding of what it means to be happy, though, doesn't really capture the meaning of the word blessed, uh, used here by Jesus. While happiness is and can be associated with blessedness, one commentator uh, described it like this. The Greek word here describes a state not of inner feeling on the part of those to whom it is applied, but of blessedness from an ideal point of view in the judgment of others. So in its fullest usage, it means an inward contentment, content, contentedness that is not affected by our circumstances. I mean, isn't this what we're all looking for? An inward contentedness that is not affected by our circumstances. It's not affected by our spouse. It's not affected by our friends. It's not affected by anything or anyone around us. But we are inwardly content. Now, blessed is also and often used of God himself. Psalm 6835 says, Awesome is God from his sanctuary, the God of Israel. He is the one who gives power and strength to his people. Blessed be God. And Paul writing to Timothy in 1 Timothy 6.15, speaking about Jesus here, he says, Which he will display at the proper time. He who is blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings, the Lord of lords. So this blessedness is a characteristic of God. And people, you and I can only share in it when we're connected to God through repentance and faith in Jesus. This is a real thing. So it's a real blessedness. It's not a feeling that comes and goes, depending on what we've eaten or how we feel. But it's a reality just as real as Jesus is real. So this blessedness is a pronouncement about what God thinks of you. A positive judgment of approval by God. He doesn't just see us like this. It's what we really are. Those in the kingdom are really blessed. Now, the blessedness that Jesus offers is not based on our own effort or our own righteousness but on the new nature that God gives us. It's the new nature that uh, Paul talks about in 2 Corinthians five seventeen, where he says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. So along with this new nature that Paul talks about here comes new actions, comes a new kingdom. Through Jesus' life and work on the cross on our behalf, we are given the ability to share in God's very own nature which is characterized by righteousness and the results of that righteousness, which is blessedness or divine happiness. In Jesus, we experience the very joy and contentment of God, That He, the very joy and contentment that He Himself experiences. Friends, this is the love of God, that He would share this blessedness, His very blessedness, His peace with you and me, unworthy sinners. That is the love of God. Here in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus, the second Adam, the new king, comes to reverse the curse brought about by the first Adam. Jesus offers you and me the blessings of God if we come to him on his terms and pursue heartfelt righteousness. Now my question to you is, does God approval or blessing matter to you? Do you care? Um, if so, good. If not, then there's obviously a problem. But for those who it does matter, the Beatitudes are blessing beyond measure that will speak to your soul and fill your heart with hope and excitement. And that's our prayer of what the study of the Beatitudes is going to do for each one of us. So let's look at Matthew 5.5 for a second. If you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn there. <clears throat> what, me- what is meekness? What is Matthew 5.5 5 all about? As I mentioned before, the Beatitudes are progressive. Each one builds on the other. So I want to, in like one or two sentences, look at uh, verses 3 and 4. <clears throat> Matthew 5.3 says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Um, poor in spirit. Uh, to see one's spiritual poverty, to see your lostness, to see your hopelessness apart from God. This is the first step of a true understanding of who we are. To understand how poor we really are outside of God. How lost we are. How hopeless we are without God's help. Um, so that's that's the poor in spirit. And then verse 4 says, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Uh, this is not mourning just over bad things that happen in your life. This is mourning over sin. This is a mourning over your own personal sin that leads to repentance. So after these first two things, after uh, a realization of your poorness in spirit, and after a mourning over sin that leads to repentance. Next, Jesus says, "Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth." Now, Hollywood heroes are usually strong. We all we all know that <clears throat> they ride taller, they shoot faster, they punch, kick harder than the other guys, and they're usually smarter. Um, and this is not just a coincidence that most all heroes we see are like that, but it's because of a deep-seated belief in our society and in Each one of us, that strength is what really counts. You know, that's not, I don't think that's a far-fetched concept. We value strength in our society. People even joke about this verse. They say, yeah, the meek will inherit the earth if that's okay with the rest of us, you know. And we, we, you know, we see the humor in there. And the reason we find that funny is because deep down we believe that meekness is weakness and that the weak will always give way to the strong. Now here, as in most of the Beatitudes, Jesus' words are completely out of step with what most people around us think. And if we are truly honest with ourselves, I would say it's out of step with what we think most of the time, deep down in our hearts. But we are not to be shaped by what others think or even by what we tell ourselves, but we should be shaped by what Jesus thinks, what Jesus lays down here in these verses and really in the whole Bible The Bible is what shapes us. The Bible is the norming norm. The Bible is the standard for our behavior and for our attitudes. So Jesus here wants to reshape the way we think about living and then have the way we think affect the way we live. You know, changing the way we think is useless without it changing the way we live, without that heart change that we've talked about earlier. Now, I want to talk briefly about... I'm, I'm one of these people. I'm one of these people that have wondered, you know, over time, how how could the Jewish people have completely rejected Jesus as their Messiah? You know, he, he did all these miracles, he did all these great things, all these wonderful things, and and how did they just so wholesale reject Jesus as the Messiah? I think this verse right here, more than maybe any other, explains that for us. Um, now, Israel had a long history of being conquered and ruled by enemies. They were conquered by the Egyptians, the Assyrians, the Persians, the Greeks, and currently they are under rule of Rome. And and there were basically four types of religious Jews during this time. Okay, we had the Pharisees. Um, They now they and each one of these different groups had an expectation of what the Messiah, how he would be, and what he would look like. The Pharisees expected the Messiah to show up with great fanfare and a show of supernatural power. The Pharisees were the religious part of the religious ruling class. Um, the ones, you know, Jesus really took it to a lot. And they just expected a Messiah that would show up with supernatural abilities and he would usher in the new kingdom. And then we had the Sadducees, and they were the other religious group, but they were they kind of downplayed the supernatural aspect of God, of this Messiah. They really expected a political Messiah, someone that would come, rule and reign, but, you know, more as a political, not, not the supernatural part. And then we had a sect of, of Jews called the Essenes, they were ascetics. They separated from the rest of society. They were kind of like, you know, the Amish today a little bit. They, they went away separate, did not, you know, utilize a lot of the things, the modern things they could have. They were, you know, they were kind of like our Amish today. And then the last group were the Zealots. The Zealots were anxiously awaiting a military Messiah to free them from bondage and lead them to glorious victory over the hated Romans and their powerful rule. The Zealots actually led several rebellions. They, they they just hated the Romans ruling them. So here, here's what they were looking for. We had the Pharisees that were basically looking for a Jewish Superman. We had the Sadducees that were basically looking for a Jewish Abraham Lincoln. We had the Essenes who were looking for a Jewish Gandhi. And the Zealots who were looking for a Jewish Rambo. I mean, that's what they were looking for. I mean, they they had this in their minds. And we wonder, you know, why they rejected Jesus. Because they had these, you know, these pre-made messiahs already they knew what messiah was going to look like so jesus comes and he preaches his sermon and so not only did he blast most of the religious leaders for their rigid ritualistic phony outward expression of religion but he shows up preaching and teaching about meekness meekness that 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 was not going to cut it for them um, in their minds, so full of these expectations of Messiah who would meet their worldly needs, they never imagined that the true Messiah would come telling them that they needed to be humble and gentle and meek. That was no way to get rid of the Romans. They were not going to get rid of the Romans by being humble, by being gentle, by being meek. And the final, the, the last straw was that Jesus died. He hung on a cross and died. That, that, there's no way he could conquer the Romans from the cross. There's no way he could lead their political party from the cross. There's no way he could, he could uh, free them from the cross. This was not the Messiah they wanted. So they utterly rejected him. Now, before we get judgmental on the Jewish people at that time, let's think about ourselves for a moment. Don't we do this very same thing all the time? Don't we decide what, what we need Jesus to do for us? based on our worldly wants and selfish desires? Perhaps instead of some of the things we pray for and desire, we should be asking to be poor in spirit. Perhaps we should ask for hearts that mourn over our sin more often. And we definitely should be asking for meekness. But what specifically is the meekness that Jesus is talking about? And the Greek word here can be kind of hard to define. It's it can be an absence of any kind of feeling of importance. And generally, it is thought of as a gentleness of uh, and self control that comes with gentleness. You might think of the phrase "gentle giant." You know, when I was uh, <clears throat> I took a business trip several years back, I met a, a basketball player named George Mur- Murison. I don't know if anybody remembers him. He played back in the '90s, but he was seven feet seven inches tall. You know, he's like hitting Nephilim range. You know, he's he, he was a big guy, and I happened to run into him at a hotel I was staying at. You know, and I was a basketball, I am a basketball fan, so I, you know, got had a camera, I think, and went up to him. And you know, he was sitting down. You know, he didn't really look that big sitting down. And so I'm like, hey, can I get a picture taken with you? And he was just like, yes. <laughs> he stood up, and you know, he just kept going and going. And his hands were like as big as my head. And but you know, he had this. I think he had this reputation of being a gentle giant. You know, he was big, strong. On the basketball court, but he was just very quiet. acted, you know, he acted kind of meek to me. He seemed just like a real gentle man. Um, but, but you know, gentle giant, uh, gentleness, self control that's associated with gentleness. And this word was used to describe wild animals that had been broken, so they were useful to do work. You know, a wild animal is no good unless it's been broken so it can work. So gentle spirit, submissive, quiet. Tender-hearted. These are some of the words that are used to describe meekness. But the Greeks considered meekness a vice because they associated it with being oppressed, kind of like a slave or someone or something that's beat down. You ever, you ever seen a dog that people have been cruel to and beat? And how you know, it's just timid, doesn't want to come around you, it's scared. That's how the Greeks considered meekness. So it was, a, it was a bad thing to them. It was a vice. But to be meek toward others does not mean this in the way Jesus means it. It implies a freedom from bitterness, from hatred, from hostility, freedom from from vengeance, from a vengeful spirit. This is the opposite of aggressiveness, harshness, tyrannical, being tyrannical. These are attitudes that bring bondage and slavery, not meekness. And the blessedness that we see in being meek and mournful and poor in spirit are for those who look at themselves and who really, really look at yourselves, really look at ourselves, and who realize our sinfulness and who repent of our sins, and then respond to God in the pursuit of righteousness. And we don't, we don't, we don't earn anything by doing this, but, but we do it to experience the nature of God, to be like Jesus, to walk the way Jesus did, to follow the way, not trying to justify our own way, ways and defend our own rights. We're concerned about Jesus's way and Jesus' rights. Now, meekness, along with most aspects of a gospel-focused life, Are lived out mainly in our attitudes and relationships with each other. You know, meekness is going to be shown on how you treat other people, how you in your heart too, not just how you outwardly treat them. Now, an example of that is we find it easy to acknowledge our own sins and faults. You know, most of us do, and to mourn and be sad over them. But when somebody else tries to show us our faults, then look out. We don't always take that as easily. Um, no, but meekness must start by understanding who we really are as Christians, and when we recognize our own sin and spiritual weakness, this leads to two kinds of actions toward others. One is it frees us from defensiveness you know frees us from being defensive. An example is you know if you 're not good at something, say time management, and you know you bemoan the fact, man, I wish I was better at managing my time and and someone else you know, comes up to you and says, hey, man, you, you need some help with time management. You're not a good manager of your time. I say, what? <laughs> not me. I'm, I'm too good at that. You know, I'm perfect at that. But meekness is the opposite of that. Meekness says, you know, you're right. Can you help me with that? I need help with that. Meekness is not defensive, but it, it's open to correction and direction. This is called being more concerned with God's glory than our own. If we stop, if we stop here, though, we could be just weakness. You know, we could be a, just a doormat and say, yeah, you're right, and just roll over and not do anything about it. But meekness also enables us to stand up to persecution and people doing us wrong with boldness. We can stand up to people with boldness. Meek people are tender and they're tough. The meek person stands up for what is right and defends not their own needs, but the needs and reputations of others. And that's going to be... a the important thing that I want everybody to understand here, um, the meek person stands up for what is right and defends not their own needs, but the needs and reputations of others. So, do you think you're tough? Somebody, we all think we're tough. Well, when was the last time you stood up for someone else? When was the last time that you stood up for someone else and it cost you something? That's true meekness. And the secret of achieving this meekness is, again, knowing who you really are in Christ Knowing that you are a great sinner, but that you are loved by a great God. Seeing your sinfulness is large. Your sinfulness is huge. But the grace of God is even bigger. It's bigger than your sinfulness. Knowing the wickedness of your own heart, but that the holy God of the universe loves and cares for you, even enough enough to send His only Son to die for your sins. Now, the person who understands His forgiveness of God could care less what others think of them. Having been loved this much, the meek person will endure conflict, trials, attacks, and various difficulties for the purpose of magnifying the greatness of God. The meek person can endure for the glory of God. God says in our weakness, He is magnified that His strength is revealed. Now most of us, again, if we're honest, I think we're... You know, we struggle with meekness. Uh, we, we, we want to defend ourselves to the very last breath. And we don't really worry too much about the reputation of others when we're doing it, or even of God. After all, someone else you know, somewhere can do that. I'm going to look out for me, right, myself. But if we are meek, we don't really care what others think of us. We don't even care what we think of ourselves. We only care what God thinks of us. So what, what is meekness not? You know, I think a lot of times we have an incorrect understanding of what meekness is because we attribute some aspects to it that it's not. Um, meekness is not weakness. Uh, meekness is power or strength under control. Power out of control is useless or even dangerous. You know, we see back to the uh, breaking the animal. An unbroken animal is very powerful, very strong, but it, it has no useful purpose really. Um, medicine that's too strong is, is, is no, no use to us. It, it, uh, it does more harm than good. A strong wind destroys. You know, we use wind for power and transportation, but a strong wind destroys. And like these things, the meat use their strength under control in the right way. Now, the second thing that meekness is not is cowardice or emotional weakness. And it's not a lack of conviction It's not just being nice. Meekness is courage. It's strength. It is conviction. But all these attitudes, we have to remember, come from God. We don't muster them up by our willpower. That's the biggest misconception about the Christian life. It's a powerful dependence on the Holy Spirit to enable us and give us the ability and the desire to be meek. R. Kent Hughes again in his book says that Jesus' words are not demanding perfection. He's not looking for us to be perfect. The point is, however, that if a gentle, meek spirit is not at least imperfectly present in you, if it's not beginning to be seen, beginning to show, and it's not growing in you, then you may very well not have the smile of Christ, which is everything. That's a very sober warning. We should be striving for meekness. There should be a sign of meekness in each child of God. Now next I want to talk about the perfect personification of meekness, and that would be Jesus himself. Jesus was boldness combined with humility. Jesus is our best number one example of meekness. Only two people in the Bible are called meek, Jesus and Moses. But Jesus is our best example of meekness by far, hands down. The spirit of meekness is the spirit of Jesus. Jesus' example, his whole time on earth was to defend the glory of his Father, but not say a word when he was cursed and beat and spit on and insulted. First Peter two twenty-one through twenty-three, I'm gonna we'll look at a few verses that talk about Jesus' meekness. First Peter two twenty-one through twenty-three. Peter wrote, for to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow his steps. Go down that way. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. And that's the answer. That's the how we're able to be meek right there. We don't have to get revenge, or we don't have to threaten, we don't have to punish people. God will judge justly. In His time, He will judge perfectly um, all sin and all disobedience. But Jesus' actions were prophesied in the Old Testament. Isaiah 53 7 says, talking about the Messiah, Jesus, He was oppressed and He was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth, like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, like a sheep that before its shears is silence is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Matthew eleven twenty nine, Jesus said, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your soul. So meekness is the recipe for rest. Matthew Matthew 21.5, Jesus, uh, during his triumphant entry into Jerusalem, he was hailed as a coming king, though he was described as humble and mounted on a donkey. And Paul in 2 Corinthians 10.1, writing to the Corinthian church, says, I, Paul, myself entreat you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. I, who am humble when face to face with you, but bold towards you when I'm away. So here, Paul, describing himself, trying to emulate Jesus, says he's humble, but bold. You know that's the example, that's the description, definition of meekness. Now think about Jesus for. Let's think about Jesus a little deeper for a second. Um, here's the perfect Son of God. He never sinned, not one time. He did. He did nothing. Uh, he did not deserve anything bad to happen to him. Really, no criticism. Let alone abuse or suffering, but when he did come his, way, but when this did come his way, when abuse and suffering and criticism and a lot came his way, he did not resist or repay or threaten his tormentors in any way. He never defended himself, but he was not weak. He was not weak. Jesus was a carpenter, right? He was a blue collar worker guy. He was familiar with a hammer and a saw. All right. um... I don't believe most of our depictions of Jesus are probably right. I think he was probably pretty, pretty, uh, you know, he wasn't weak. He was strong. I think he had muscles. I think he could take care of himself. He could defend himself if he wanted to. And we see this when his father's house was disrespected and dishonored. What did Jesus do? Well, John two fourteen through 15 talks about uh, Jesus in the temple. It says the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. So Jesus cleared the temple like this at least two times in the Scriptures. And I don't I don't know about you, but this is not something that a weak, helpless person does. These are guys making a living doing this in the temple. He turned over their tables and spilled their money everywhere. Now, I don't know about you, but that would probably made them pretty angry and pretty upset at him. What I see here is somewhat of an intimidating man who threw out a bunch of guys who were... Um, defiling his father's house. Um, Ian, uh, I'm not sure how to pronounce his name, Duguid, he wrote a book called Hero of Heroes, and he said, Jesus was passionate in his pursuit of righteousness, as passionate about protecting God's honor and the rights of others as he was willing to forego his own right. He was bold concerning others, yet humble concerning himself. That's meekness. Many times Jesus was pretty harsh and repeatedly denounced the hypocritical, phony religious leaders of his day. He had no problem judging and letting people know what happened when people twisted and corrupted God's Word. He was fearless when it came to confronting sin and defending the truth of God's Word. Jesus was no wimp. He was not a wimp then, and he's certainly not a wimp now. But through all this, he never defended himself against false attacks and accusations. This is the pattern that we see. He defended others. He defended his father. He defended God's word boldly and with strength. But he never defended himself. Nowhere is this fact more clear than the hours that led up to the crucifixion. The insults that Jesus bore, the beatings, you know, again being spit upon, the scourging. You know, if we sit and think about the scourging and the flogging for a while, um, <clears throat> should really touch us. You know, uh, he endured that. He endured all of this hatred, and he endured it unjustly. But through all this, if he was concerned about himself, you know, he could have summoned legions of angels to hell. Matthew 26.53 tells us that. Not only did he not do that, but he never lifted a finger when he could have removed himself instantly from the excruciating pain and rejection that he was experiencing. Now, do you think that took a lot of strength? I think that took a lot of strength. After the torture that Jesus endured, when he finally said something, it was to ask God to forgive his tormentors. Father, forgive them, he cried, because they do not know what they are doing. So the meek are not the weak, but the meek do not use their strength for their own good or defense or own selfish reasons. Meekness is gospel-centered, passionate, bold strength under the prayerful control of the Spirit of God. Now the second part of this verse, Matthew five five, um, says that blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Now what does that mean? Inherit the earth? Now here, here Jesus is quoting from Psalm thirty seven eleven, which says, "But the meek shall inherit the land and delight themselves in abundant peace." So part of the blessing of meekness is that the meek will inherit this new heaven and this new earth, this perfect place. Where Jesus reigns triumphantly, and his people share and enjoy this perfect paradise. So only the meek will inherit the land. Now, we need to understand that's what he's saying here. Butts are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. It's only the meek. It's not the meek and some other people. It's the meek are the ones that will inherit the land. Uh, this understanding of the earth and the land, I think, carries the idea of God's promises to the uh, nation, to the land, to Israel. God promised Abraham a land. To his descendants that would be their very own now even though in the old testament the nation of israel they possessed some of the actual land for some of the time uh, the fulfilled promise was always out of reach and never fully possessed for them i think this was god's way of showing abraham's descendants that this land that they were seeking is not a literal piece of earth no the children of abraham have always been pursuing a heavenly land that has always been available but only by faith and regardless of how much real estate is owned in the Middle East. But the danger for God's people, from Abraham to you and me, is that we become far more concerned with our slice of the earth than the land we are promised. The danger is we become more concerned with settling down and owning properly than seeking after God. The danger for God's people is that we become proud and we become self-sufficient, and worried about how many things and how much stuff we can accumulate by our own strength. In the process, our concern for the poor and the needy is swallowed up by our desire for possessions and for reputation. This danger is the danger of becoming the very opposite of meek. So this is the temptation and challenge for you and me today. God has placed us in a very very tempting time and a very tempting place. We're in a time and place when everything around us and inside of us screams for the comfort and the ease that money and possessions have to offer. But as Christians, you know, these things aren't bad, but they're not our goal in life. This should not be the most important these should not be the most important things in our lives. Hebrews tells us we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. We seek the real land and the real city that is our forever home, not a temporary home. Even so we do our best while we are here to see the kingdom come here on earth as it is in heaven. Now, this world's judgment is not important, but it's the judgment of God and the reward that God gives us. That is what's important. Now, the flip side of the inheritance by the meek is the judgment on the wicked. Psalm 37, again, verses 7 through 10, says, Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Fret not yourselves over the one who prospers in his way, over the man who carries out evil devices. Refrain from anger and forsake wrath. Fret not yourself, it tends only to evil. For the evildoers shall be cut off, but those who wait for the Lord shall inherit the land. In just a little while the wicked will be no more. Though you look carefully at his place, he will not be there. So judgment is the right and necessary flip side of blessing. Those who don't see their sin and mourn over their sin, and who are arrogant and prideful will see the fruit of their disobedience which is a righteous judgment by a holy God. And they will not inherit the land. This land belongs to the meek eternally and only the meek. And one thing I want to point out is that Jesus does say here, inherit the land. Inherit means the meek won't have to fight for the land. We won't have to overrun the land. We won't have to go on an auction and be the highest bidder for the land. We won't even have to put in an offer for the land. Somebody already did all the work. Jesus paid for the land with his blood. For those who are poor in spirit and who mourn and who are meek, Jesus has paid that for us too. So all we have to do is wait for our inheritance. It's really as simple as that. It's not hard work to wait for the land. Jesus said his yoke is easy because he already did the heavy lifting for us. Now, in conclusion, um, this, there is a cost to this blessedness for us. It is a life of sacrifice. It is is sacrificing your pride and your arrogance and your time and your things for others, for God's glory. And these beatitudes in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus reminds us of and reestablishes. He does remind us of a moral standard for living that is, for the most part, the exact opposite from that of the world and our flesh. To live by these standards is to share God's very own blessedness. This new way to be human results in joy instead of despair. Peace instead of conflict. A peace that the world does not have and cannot understand. You can't go to the world for this peace. This blessedness is not produced by our self-will or our circumstances, what we have or what we do not have. But because it is not produced externally or within us, neither can it be destroyed externally or by ourselves. We can't destroy it. Neither can the world. But these internal changes will also bring external changes. If our outer life is not much matching up with what we say our inner life is, then something's terribly wrong. James two twenty says, Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? In Ephesians two, eight through ten, for by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand. That we should walk in them. We should follow Jesus in them. Now I just want to read a, a, a fairly long quote from, from John Calvin. And he has something to say. And I want, you, there's, I want you to think about three little key words just in this quote. Shepherd, sheep, and wolves. Okay? Shepherd, sheep, and wolves. So speaking on this verse, Matthew 5, 5, Calvin says this, We know that God has given us the Lord Jesus Christ to be our shepherd. As such, his most vital work is to preserve our souls, to shepherd our souls, until we attain the eternal salvation which he has won for us. Nevertheless, even in this transitory life, he cares also for our physical being. Let us therefore be his sheep, for he is not a shepherd to wolves. If we choose to live like wild beasts... Throw off all restraint and contrive, as the saying goes, to add insult to injury. And if, as soon as we are offended or upset, we take up arms to defend ourselves and try to create as much havoc as we can, we cannot expect Jesus to be our shepherd. What he requires is that we hear his voice. Sheep and lambs hear their master's voices. Let them be our example. If then we are honest and sincere, we will surely discover how strong a protector the Son of God is. For He will employ His Father's power to keep and sustain us. So let me urge you today to follow the Great Shepherd, Jesus Christ. Have you heard His voice? Do you follow Him? If so, praise God, let me urge you to pursue meekness with every ounce of your being. For only the meek will inherit the earth. If you've never put your trust in Jesus as your Savior and repented of your sins and responded to the call of Jesus, the Great Shepherd. And if you feel the guilt of your sin weighing down on your soul, let me urge you, cry out to Jesus today for forgiveness and a new life, one that's characterized by meekness. Don't confuse it with weakness. Let me assure you, Jesus is a lot of things, but weak He is not. In these Beatitudes, Jesus is ushering in a kingdom way of life. Jesus shines a spotlight on what a Christian looks like or someone who is a new creature in Christ. This is what they look like. And we'll be hearing a lot more about what that person looks like. Now, many, many people throughout time have admired Jesus. We saw this in Gandhi. He admired Jesus and his teachings on the kingdom. But not all want to follow Jesus. That's my last question for you this morning. Are you an admirer of Jesus or are you a follower of Jesus. Only the followers will inherit the land. Let's pray. Father, we thank You so much for Your Word and the truth of Your Word and the power of Your Word and how Your Word is like honey to our lips. Father, it feeds us. It nourishes us. It strengthens us. It rebukes us, Father. It confronts our sinful hearts and we Continue to ask for Your grace, Lord, for our hearts to be softened, um, Lord, that we would love You with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, that we would love our neighbor as ourself, that we would pursue meekness and kindness and gentleness, Father. We would be here at Ephesus Church known as a meek church, Father, as a church that loves others and a church that loves You, that we would be known as a Jesus church who follows Your way. In all things, Lord, thank you for this time that we've had. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.